Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend. Okay, so Christian subculture can be a little dorky. That's why many in the last half century have worked hard to create Christianity with mass appeal. I like big bubbles and I cannot lie. The end result of that mission has been the seeker-sensitive movement, a movement dedicated to creating a Christianity that speaks to the person who has never been in church before. A Christianity focused primarily on the outside world. Whether you mark its beginnings with Willow Creek and Bill Hybels or the Crystal Cathedral and Robert Schuller, the goal has been singular. Create a service with the seeker in mind. By now, I hope we can be honest about what this approach has produced. Largely preachers with sneakers that get laughs but aren't great at answering questions about scriptural truths. I don't know why you're wrestling like that and I don't know what to do to help you but to stand with you and pray with you and not, and you're welcome at Transformation Church. Trans is in the title, Transformation, you can be here. Oh God. What you just heard is a great example of what a seeker-sensitive church sounds like. While Mike Todd, the pastor in this clip, is doing the noble work of telling his congregation that they are supposed to put their opinion second to God's word, He's also doing it in such a way that is so soft peddling that it makes you wonder, what is this guy's qualifications to be a pastor anyway? The one thing we know from his message is that he doesn't know very much. As a pastor, like, so what do you think about gay men? I don't know. Listen to any detransitioner for just a half a second. My name is Chloe Cole, and I'm an 18-year-old former transgender child. I transitioned from the age of 12 up until 16 when I realized it all was a lie. My story is cautionary tale. And you'll hear the horror stories of how they'll never have children, they'll have bone pain for the rest of their life, and probably die early as a result of their transition, and you realize that what Mike Todd should have done is warn people against this sinful practice rather than to merely welcome them. But this practice of seeker-sensitive evangelical messaging has been going on for over a generation in the church. The seeker-sensitive approach is, has made sure to place an emphasis on the seeker at the expense of difficult truths very often. The seeker movement began as a noble attempt to reach new people. In the process, it abdicated one of its most basic functions, to preach to the choir. Because it spent most of its time working to reach a lot of people outside the church, it increasingly became irrelevant to the people in the church and to the culture. So it alienated its base while making no real ground in the culture. So the culture got stronger and Christians got weaker. Faith is what brought me out of the closet. Many will argue that the seeker movement has made a way for the megachurch movement, which has seen churches grow to record number. And isn't that a good thing? While the statistics aren't really clear to dictate whether or not the megachurch has actually merely just shut down smaller churches and just added already existing Christians into their congregation, this one thing is true. The one thing we can say is that the megachurch movement, fueled by the seeker-sensitive message, has overseen a record-breaking <laughs> steep decline in church attendance and one of the most profound cultural declines toward progressivism in American history. If John Wesley was right and the world is our parish, then the evangelical megachurch, who has been for a long time the greatest Christian influence in society, must bear some of the blame for the way our society looks. As we've become experts of culture and not Christianity, we've realized how corrupt and ungodly it has become. 
The real question for the megachurch congregation is this. What does your church look like the Sunday after your pastor speaks a biblical message about abortion or homosexuality? Has he done it? Does it cease to be a megachurch? And does that mean the bold proclamation of Christian truth and megachurches cannot coexist? I think the real answer is we don't know because we haven't seen enough culturally relevant pastors step to the plate and do it. They haven't directly confronted these issues that could help adulterers, help trans people, help abortionists, help liars and hypocrites, and whatever else you want to add. Yet the church can regain its utility, but only if it's willing to return to the message of Christ. The message that says not what can God do that's good for me, but what can God do that will make me good. When we see in our stories today, former Harvest founder and lead pastor James McDonald charged with felony assault on a 59-year-old woman, what do we make of it? When we see people crying for tolerance for the likes of Dylan Mulvaney in the church, but then rejoicing when a brother is kicked while he's down, what does that say about the mentality of the modern Christian? I'll also show you Mike Todd again, who took down his 2023 Easter message where he crucified a woman and made fun of white girls' booties. And all this on the heels of him hiring Carl Lentz, the famous adulterer and megachurch pastor. And then finally, I'll show you supposed theologians who defend the right for the LGBTQ community to use invented pronouns. Today, I hope to show you why the seeker movement is outmoded, why numbers don't actually mean success, and why truth is one of the greatest ways to show that you love other people. All that and more today on Indie Thinker. Today's show is sponsored by our friends over at Anchor. Perhaps you feel like you're called to business and you have a great idea, but you need help fleshing that vision out. Maybe you are the visionary, but you don't necessarily know how to incorporate your business, do bookkeeping, accounting, or hire any of those things that you could hire an expert to do. Well, if you don't know who you can turn to, well, I've got good news for you. Our sponsor today, Anchor, can help you with all that and so much more. Now, in order to do that, you've got to go to their website, ancur.biz, where you can find a list of all the ways that they can help you create a business that not only survives, but thrives. So if you want to see how they can help you put legs underneath your vision, go to ancur.biz, and when you do so, let them know that IndieThinker sent you. Welcome to the show. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Now, for those of you who have followed the channel for a while, you know that I've had James McDonald on the show in the past where he discussed kind of his firing from Harvest, gave his side of the story, and all of that. Now, comments about that podcast have ranged from, why are you defending this man? He is evil, and he threatened to put child pornography on someone's computer, which, by the way, was obviously a joke, all the way to um, high praise for McDonald and the work that he did in his church and how it changed people's lives, saved their marriage, and all sorts of other things. So there's been quite a, a polarizing take on it. And the latest story of what's been happening with James will probably be no less polarizing. But I wanted to, to speak about it just simply because there have been those who have run to the comment section about what he just did and tried to anachronistically uh, place what happened just recently in San Diego and the assault charges that were brought upon him and what took place in the past at at Harvest. Now, I understand why people are trying to make the correlation, but we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and these two incidents are not related. And as we dig into the story, hopefully we'll, we'll try to find some place for nuance, but suffice to say, I've already given a brief tertiary glance at the story, but James McDonald was in San Diego. Somebody hit the back of his car. A woman came out of the vehicle, ran towards him, and then what 
happens after that, we don't really know except to say that James McDonald was charged for felony assault on the woman and, um, and was arrested by the police. So this 59-year-old woman is now asked charges to be pressed upon him, and we've still yet to hear completely what took place and what those charges look like and, and all of that. But needless to say, it hasn't stopped many mobbing upon James McDonald to declare that what happened at Harvest was absolutely justified. And here yet again, we have evidence of this man being an evil human being. Now, let me just be really clear. I'm, I'm all for the Christian mob, right? I feel like we should use our powers for good, and we should be using our influence to actually influence people beyond just getting likes on social media. We should actually be changing the culture. So I'm all for the mob jumping on an idea or a story and making sure that the truth is heard in the midst of it. So I'm fine, like when Carl Lentz comes out cheating on his wife, and for the people that come out and cry out for his job, I think we should do that. But we need to do that when we know what we're talking about. Um, so let me be really clear. We hear a lot about judgmentalism, oddly enough, mainly from people who don't have a mirror and don't know how judgmental they're being. Now, of course, they hate judgmentalism, but they are very quick to judge anybody that disagrees with them. So I remember having this uh, happen to me in the past as we, I was speaking with somebody about how, why people are leaving the church. And... Um, and so I happen to suggest that the reason people are leaving the church is because Christians aren't, by and large, standing up for Christian principles and Christian values and effectively arguing for Christian truth in the public square. Therefore, the public doesn't really see the need for Christianity. And of course, I was told that it is because Christians are just too damned intolerant. And how could you even suggest such a stupid thing that Christians aren't preaching the truth? And it's actually the preaching of the truth that's caused people to run away from the church. And we need to be more loving, you idiot. Now, of course, I saw the incredible hypocrisy from the intolerant, tolerant crowd in the Christian church that always leans more left, by the way, and, and the way we see this in society as well. Those who are calling for the most tolerance actually typically have it the, the least. And that is the same with judgmentalism. We are quick to say, well, we shouldn't be judgmental or snap to judgment, but then, of course, there are people who are really glad to do it when they see a pastor fall from grace or when they see a pastor, which is a misnomer, by the way, but nonetheless, it's a colloquialism. When we see a pastor who's who's fallen, we, we there are those who love to sink their teeth into that guy. And it's typically the Christian progressive or the deconstructionist who thinks that we need to allow people the space and the freedom and the love to deconstruct and destroy their faith um, and, and walk with them as they do that. But of course, whenever we can destroy things, we're, we're glad to do it. Needless to say, judgmentalism is only judgmentalism when you're making a snap judgment or making a judgment without information. To call somebody an, an adulterer who is an adulterer is not judgmental, or to call Dylan Mulvaney somebody who is at best very mentally disturbed, if not a cosplaying hack of a wannabe woman, that's not judgmentalism, and we actually have the receipts to be able to back that up, just as we did with Carl Lentz's affair. And my point here is this is that all we know about the story with James McDonald is that he was charged with felony assault. And the problem with the Julie Royces of the world who want to come out and to declare these stories as proof positive that the church needs reformation and Julie is here to do it for us all, is that Julie is probably not going to come back after the fact if this is thrown out of 
of court and make sure to exonerate McDonald as the court may do. Now, I'm not suggesting that they will. All I'm saying is, is that when we're quick to jump on the bandwagon without the information that we actually need to know what took place, then we should be, we should be slow to, to put forth our judgment. So in other words, it's fine to be judgmental about things that you're aware of. It becomes judgmentalism when you are making snap judgments without the correct information. Now, let me give you an anonymous source that gave me an alternative story. And whether you choose to believe it or not is up to you. But just so you know, there are two sides to every story. So the anonymous, anonymous source, which you may be able to guess, uh, told me that uh, James McDonald has been suffering from PTSD, as you might imagine, since he was kicked out of his church, and has had severe anxiety attacks and blackouts. So when this accident happened, James McDonald immediately had an anxiety attack. When the woman rushed out of her car and rushed toward him, he immediately blacked out and he actually fell on the woman and then fell face first into the pavement, crushing his face. And so when he fell on the woman, he doesn't recollect any of this stuff according to this source. Um, when he fell on the woman, there could have been damage that was done to her, but that was not damage that was actually done physically and, in, and intentionally in an in, intentional manner, needless to say. And so there's a court brief that is going to be filed, if it hasn't already been filed, that uh, that this event was, was an accident and was predicated upon a blackout, but not actually a direct physical assault. Now, I'll be the first to admit that that sounds like one heck of an alternative story, but it's also somewhat plausible to believe that somebody might be going through PTSD, have anxiety attacks, and blackouts, and that may be what happened here. All I'm saying is this, is that until the facts come out, we should reserve our wild-eyed judgment about what actually took place until we actually know. So we should actually have the humility to suggest that, sure, let's talk about it. Let's discuss back and forth, but that we don't have the information that is necessary to really, really understand what took place. So talk about it, discuss it, do what you will, but have the humility to understand that you don't know what took place. And that humility will create a space for nuance. And this is my big problem at the end of the day and where this comes back to the secret church. We aren't creating the kind of Christians who are nuanced thinkers in the Christian church, and we're worse for it. We're creating Christians who are quick to castigate those who represent established Christianity because the seeker-sensitive movement has made us believe that those who basically hate everything that Christianity stands for, hate its values, hate its God, they're the ones that we really need to be that we need to be sympathetic towards rather than sympathetic to the Christians who are actually within the four walls of our church. Well, I've got news for you. The way the disciples loved each other was a testimony to the world, not necessarily the way the disciples loved the world. Of course, both of those things are not mutually exclusive. We should do both. But my point to you is this, is that if the seeker-sensitive movement has positioned our target so far away from our fellow brother and sister in Christ, and caused us to think that actually the way we really need to love people is by making sure we win the favor of Kim Kardashian and try to get her to come preach at our church, well, then we have vastly misunderstood what actual Christian benevolence looks like, and we've confused it with human sympathy. And this is my problem with the secret church. We talk a lot about compassion and love, but when it comes down to actually show it, we have very little of it. And perhaps we should be able to show it to a man, regardless of the situation, who has nothing to offer. And by that, I mean this. Those who want to 
apologize for, let's just say, a Mike Todd and say, well, Mike Todd meant this when he said that. And they want to sow this kind of understanding for Mike Todd, especially when it pertains to our next story that we're about to jump into. They want to give understanding to Mike Todd because Mike Todd actually offers them something. He's a young black man at a thriving, growing church in Tulsa. And so to side with Mike Todd puts you in the in crowd. But now to side with James McDonald, that's that's a man who's been basically blackballed from the Christian community, and there's nothing to gain from him. And so I'm not going to try to sympathetically understand his story whatsoever. He's somebody that basically can be dead to me, which means ultimately the kind of love that you're talking about is nothing more than self-love. And we'll see kind of this fabricated version of love and fabricated version of Christianity, I think, on display in Mike Todd's recent Easter service that had to be taken down from his website. So here is just a couple of clips from this amazing display of gospel-centric truth. I want the person who feels lonely and isolated and like God doesn't care, I want them to see how amazing Jesus actually is and what God actually did for all of us. So I said, we're going to go to the edge on this. And they said, Pastor, how far on the edge are we going to go? I said, we're going to do everything short of sin. Oh, y'all, I felt the religious people. Their booties got tight right there. So no, you may not wear a yellow and blue checkerboard suit. But I do. And we can be ourselves in this place. And I just thank you, Bishop, for creating the atmosphere for us to have what you're about to see today. In 2015... Um, I became the pastor, and I didn't know what a pastor did. Huh. It's very interesting. It's an introduction there from Mike Todd, inviting us all who are religious to understand that this Easter service, if you're offended by it, it's because you're an uptight religious dork. And why did you even come to church on Easter Sunday to think that we would do an Easter service that has anything to do with Jesus and his resurrection. No, the goal of this Easter service is to be edgy and to try to offend as many Christian people as possible so that those who hate God and the things God stands for will rejoice like the demons of hell. Now, in the process of his beautiful introduction there that alienated his very crowd uh, at, at, at Easter, uh, he goes on to tell us that one of the goals of Christianity is just to be yourself. Now, that is weird because the whole Christian thing really made me believe that the goal was to be like Jesus, but apparently it's just to find who you are, self-describe, and self-identify, which is no different than what the world tells us all the time. Um, but then he goes further also to tell us that uh, he started off being a pastor and didn't even know what a pastor was, and I'm pretty sure he's still struggling with that because as we go a little bit deeper into this fiasco known as an Easter service that Mike Todd eventually thought was maybe even too edgy for people with a prefrontal cortex because he took it down off of his website. As we go a little bit further, we'll see what else is kind of disturbing about this edgy Easter service. Hey, they thought it was sweet and started celebrating. They ain't even people I was orchestrating. Raise a toast to the king, it's a special Girl, we keep telling you it's okay. Your little booty matter too, friend. Y'all know. 
They don't be discriminating. So apparently it's edgy to make fun of white girl booties and to crucify a woman. So all I'll say is this. If Mike Todd was equipping people to answer apologetic questions about belief and human sexuality or standing up for orthodoxy in any real way, he could probably get away with this sophomoric attempt at an Easter service. But when he doesn't do that, he leaves us all wondering why in the world is he even a pastor in the first place? It leaves us desperate for halfwits and pulpits to step aside so that real pastors can stand up and answer the questions of our age effectively without this kind of theatrical nonsense. It makes us want people like Johnny Mac to step to the plate and show us how we should be answering difficult questions in the face of a culture that is antithetical to Christianity. Episodes like this. John MacArthur, what is the irreparable harm of gays being married? Well, I think there are a number of things that we need to talk about. One is it would destroy the family. I mean, obviously, God designed the family to be a man and a woman to produce a child. It is the DNA. It's the genetic structure of civilization. If you don't have that, you don't have civilization. So you're striking it at the very core of its existence. But what does the state have to do with that? You, God can do it, and as a religious person, you can practice it. But why should the state be involved in a marriage? Well, typically the state has always involved, yeah, always no, been involved in a marriage. And I think that because the state's responsibility is to uphold what is right, to uphold righteousness. I mean, it's in the fabric of human thinking. Now on the flip side, here is the seeker-sensitive pastor, Carl Lentz, who just got hired at uh, Transformation Church, doing the exact opposite of providing thoughtful answers. So it's not a sin in your church to have an abortion? Um, that's the kind of conversation we would have, finding out your story, where you're from, what Work you believe. Work through it, like talk yeah, about Yeah, I mean, God's the judge. People have to live to their own convictions. And I so I hope we can see the difference. The difference is that we need people who are really going to reach the seeker with the truth. As I've suggested before on this show and in past shows, the real reason people are leaving the church is because they do not feel like they can find the answers that they cannot find anywhere else in society at the church. See, we are to be that one countercultural place that's not trying to do the best that we can to offend Christians, but actually to provide seekers with answers by giving robust, thoughtful Christian responses to those things. The kind of things that make Christians applaud, because you are preaching to the choir, and the kind of things that finally help the seeker understand what Christians actually believe. The more we pander, the less relevant we become. The more we stand, the more difference we can make. But just pandering to the left and giving in to those idiotic ideas is nothing more than what people see all the time in society. And it is so hackneyed. I've said it before and I'll continue to say it, that even if people disagree with you, at least they can respect you if you're willing to tell them the truth. And in a world where the truth has become more ostracized and it is more socially unacceptable to tell the truth than ever before, it's possible that somebody will perceive your act of courage to tell them the truth as perhaps one of the most loving things that they've seen in a long time, if you're willing to tell it. But unfortunately, in our last story, we'll see that there is a Christian 
theologian of sorts that wants to tell us that we should respect the pronouns of others. So it's time once again for Bible study with Democrats. Oh God of pronouns. By now you've probably seen the Instagram reel or TikTok sensation of Christians questioning why there are those in the LGBTQ community who call themselves they, them, and we, and why we also see people in the Bible who are possessed by demons doing the exact same thing. Now, you can see that on the screen here, and admittedly, it's a little bit overwrought and overblown, and I'll get to why in just a moment, but Dan McClellan, a Mormon theologian, I suppose. I don't know if he classifies himself as Mormon, but certainly went to Brigham Young University and comes from that kind of school of thought. And uh, somebody who considers himself a Bible scholar, who I'll put in scare quotes, recently responded to this, to these series of posts about they, them, uh, pronouns, and demon-possessed people, and the correlation between those things. And in it, he wanted to make sure that you, Christian fundamentalists, understands how ridiculous and dumb you are and how harmful you're being to the LGBTQ community. So here is Superman, Dan McClellan, here to save us with his astounding logic. Check it out. Hey, everybody. I've been tagged a number of times in this video in which this creator is rather blithely trying to rhetorically demonize folks who prefer singular they, them pronouns. Now, in addition to being phenomenally harmful and misguided rhetoric, it is flatly false for a number of reasons. To begin, in these two different stories, in Mark and in Luke, the demons never use they and them for themselves. The narrative refers to the demons using plural they and them. The demons refer to themselves using plural we, us. Now here's the biggest problem. Those four pronouns are all plural. When people prefer they, them pronouns, they are preferring singular they and them pronouns. And singular they, them has been in widespread usage within the English language for literally hundreds of years. There's absolutely nothing unusual or problematic about singular they, them, and they are different pronouns from plural they, them, just like you can be singular and can be plural, can be two different pronouns. And so the pronouns that are preferred by individuals today do not occur anywhere in either of these narratives. The pronouns that do occur in these narratives are not used by anyone who prefers they, them pronouns today. So this rhetoric is flatly false. And I would exhort this creator and people who agree with this creator to rethink their rhetoric and rethink how much harm they are causing by so thoughtlessly trying to demonize people who are just trying to exist. Now, just a couple of things. Uh, words are not harmful. If misgendering really hurts you, you desperately need to find something bigger to believe in than the words that people say, because your snowflake existence should not be threatened by people, and you shouldn't need other people to tell you what you are, or else you absolutely lose it. Furthermore, I object to the idea that those in the LGBTQ activist community are just merely trying to, quote, exist. So the drag queen that comes into Drag Queen Story Hour at a local library that wants to shove their LGBTQ agenda book down the throat of children to encourage young boys to wear dresses and young girls to perform double mastectomies because who needs those pesky breasts at the end of the day? They're not, they're not just trying to exist. Those guys wearing gimp costumes and shaking their butts in front of frightened children at pride parades, they're not just trying to exist. 
What they're trying to get people to do is to affirm their existence. So no, that's not true. Um, and especially this is the case with those who try to insist that you say their pronouns or else. Those people are not just trying to exist. They're trying to force you to speak a ridiculous idea into existence so that it makes them feel better about their insanity. Now, I'm not just being mere ad hominem here because I want to take a moment to agree with my friend Dan here. He is right about the use of they, them pronouns and there being a singular use of they, them. So yes, Dan McClellan is technically right about linguistics here that you can use they, them speaking in, in the singular. So I could say, um, where did my son go? Well, they went somewhere down there. And uh, I, you could do that technically in English. Okay, so he is correct about that. But Christians aren't right either technically here because where they're talking about demon-possessed people referring to themselves in the plural, they're actually referring to multiple demons because this comes from, I think, Luke chapter 8, but it comes from the, the man in the, the garrison tomb and he's got... Uh, so many demons in him that when Jesus finally casts those demons out of him, it goes into something like 2,000 pigs. It says a, a, that the name of the the demon is Legion, and it goes into a whole bunch of a herd of pigs who then throw themselves off of a cliff and down to their death. So needless to say, there seems to be multiple demons inside of this person. So when that person is saying we, they're actually acknowledging the fact that there are multiple demons inside of them. And so they're actually expressing the plural here. So Dan may be right about using singular they, them pronouns, but he's more importantly wrong about the thing that really matters, which is this, is that non-binary people don't really exist. And that's exactly what people are doing when they use they, them pronouns. They're trying to use those pronouns to objectively deny the reality of their birth sex. Now, of course, they're using subjective language, but they're communicating an objective fact that they want to cram down your throat, which is that they don't associate with male nor female, that they only associate with they, them pronouns because they don't fit into those categories as though they've broken the mold the moment they were born. So yes, in that way, they are totally wrong for using they, them pronouns when they refer to themselves. Moreover, I got to say this, I think it's really funny that Dan wants to talk about um, the non-binary nature of truth, but then when it comes to linguistics, he says, you're wrong and I'm right. So there seems to be a binary kind of um, contradiction there in terms because I believe in the law of non-contradiction, I'll say this. There is a way in which people can be wrong when they use language, and there is a way in which people can be wrong when they try to identify themselves outside of the gender binary, which does exist. So when we're talking about an individual who refuses to accept their biological sex, which 15 minutes ago would have been called madness or demonic, especially by the supposed intellectual class, it's important that we be really clear. The invention of non-binary people is an assault on science, an assault on common sense, and the God who created them male and female. So, nice try. Even if they-them pronouns might somehow be correct in English, it's bad anthropology and even worse theology to suggest that people can be non-binary. And so well-meaning Christians might be wrong about linguistics in this case, either because you can use they-them in a singular fashion or because... The individual that's referring to himself as, as we actually has a plurality of demons inside of him. But we can also say in the same token that though those Christians may be wrong technically, 
that also in the same way, in a more fundamental and important way, the people who refuse to acknowledge their biological sex are way more wrong because it actually is binary, regardless if they like it or not. I mean, you can't go around suggesting that a penis is just kind of a jump ball. It only slightly increases your chance of being a boy. So how about this? How about we return to the laws of non-contradiction where we understand that right is right and wrong is wrong, and that if you're going to be right, that you can't be wrong and call it right. How about this? How about we return to the acknowledgement that there is a standard of truth, and there is a God who made it, and we desperately need him really, really bad. So whether you want to be seeker-sensitive or not, make sure you're this if you're anything. Make sure you're God-sensitive, because... Our society is reeling in the absence of people who are. So if you agree with that, I'd love to hear from you. If you don't, thank you for watching. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And most importantly, go with God.